Um, before we even get into the podcast, look, there there are many, Odie, there, there are many epic sci-fi journeys out there. There are many epic sci-fi Rebel tales Moon. that fall into the Jungian. No, skip that one. <laughs> that fall into the uh, Jungian uh, hero of a thousand faces, the hero's wheel, the hero's journey. Uh, what, what would be the one that sticks out the most in your mind, not Rebel Moon? Oh, uh, Star Wars, Star Trek, Red Dwarf, Stargate, yeah, um, where, Rebel and, Moon Part and, Two, and and where skip that one, and where <laughs> uh, where pray tell do you think a lot of these movies found their influence? Hmm. Well, I know the answer. Yeah, you do. And it's Star and Wars. I want you to say it. No, it's not Star Wars. It's what? not Star Wars. Where when did Star Dune Wars find come its influence? Out? When did Dune come out, the book? What the year? The 60s. Did it really? Yes. What year did Dune, the book, come George out? George Lucas was greatly influenced by Frank Herbert's Dune. Okay, okay, okay. No, I do I do know that uh, Dune the, is... Yes, yeah. the answer's Dune, Odie. The answer's it not Star could Wars. could be Star Wars, though. No, because Star Wars is arguably Wars. more popular. It's no. more popular. No. Yes. It, it, yeah, it became more popular, but what exactly. was popular first? What was what's first? popular now? What was the original. What's popular now? Dune. Unpop. Denny Villain. Yeah, that's right. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> All right, here we go. Oh, that's a thumbs down. I was, it did emojis. I was just trying to get, yes, I'm ready to clap. All right, ready? Three, two, one. Welcome to the Dune episode of the Unpop Podcast. I'm going to put in some sound effects, some some, some ambiance. What happened to our sitcom laugh track that we were going to do? Uh, we're not funny enough. Uh, (laughs) Okay, that's fair. Uh, (laughs) So this is this is the Dune episode, and it's going to be ambient. Wait, is no, it Dune or Dune? Dune, Dune, Dune or Dune, Dune. Okay, D U N E, Dune. Dune or Dune, Dune, or June. That's enough of that. Uh, so, <laughs> Denis Villeneuve has brought Dune back to life. Uh, has done an amazing job with this. Uh, let's introduce ourselves real quick, though. I am your capitan or if we were in the duke world i would or the duke if we were in the dune world i would be your duke uh duke kevin minor piloting this wonderful house to a deserted planet or not deserted a desert planet where the richest resource in the galaxy lays with me as always is odie matthews what is the chef equivalent of cooking up content. You're still just a chef. Ah, I'm still just a chef. Still just a chef, Odie Matthews, <laughs> no, they them. Still cooking no, up this content. No upgrade in the Dune universe. Uh, yes, you Can I are... be executive chef in no. the Dune universe? No, you would just Why? be chef. Chefs, chefs are more likely servants because it's a very Oh, God, I don't want to be a servant. <laughs> it's a few that you are, though, and you will serve this house well. Okay, can I be like Cuba Gooding Jr.'s chef character from the Pearl Harbor movie where I still get to fight? 
Okay. Sorry. You are. Right. You, it's. I said it's a feudal system. All right. Uh, this on this episode, this is uh one of our deep dives this season. Uh, we're gonna do two deep dives, and then the season is complete. But we couldn't complete it without doing these, and I chose Dune. I originally was going to do Warhammer, but then realized that was a little too much. Yep. Uh, and if I'm going to do Warhammer, I'm gonna have to do multiple deep dives over the course of multiple seasons of this show. Let's wait for the Warhammer movie. Was, no, I'm gonna, and then do a deep no. dive. Okay, maybe. Oh. I'm going to um, do the deep dive around the time the movie comes out. I'll consider it. Okay. Uh, I might get into it next season. You never know. It, never it know. all depends on where my hyperfixation leads me. Um, Can't wait so, for my deep dive. So this is Dune. Odie, what do you know about Dune? Okay. Other than that, it influenced Star Wars, your favorite franchise. Yes, I do know that. And I, um, I know that there is the House Atreides. I know okay. that they are not liked very well um no they no they are well they're not liked by the emperor yes because he sends them to a planet yep uh in order to and then he sends another uh people to wipe them out and on this planet is spice which is basically like the gold or crack or unattainium or whatever you want to call it of the i'm glad you said that all right that's enough of the plot all right i'm glad you said unobtainium (laughs) i know more though okay but that's great that's enough for now Uh, i'm glad you said unobtainium and i want to get this out of the way dune is so much if you watch dune if you absorb the information in in a dune book or or a dune movie this is this is the superior sibling or distant relative even i would say distant relative at this point to james cameron's avatar Okay, and I want to get this out of the way before I even start breaking down this movie. First off, naming mechanisms, way better. We'll get into it, right? Avatar mm-hmm. naming mechanisms, super weird. Secondly, and I just want, I'm, I'm going to get this off my plate. I know this isn't the Avatar episode, but when you call something unobtainium, I don't care if it's a real wor- word that exists in the world. It's a dumb word, first it's off. It's dumb. But Very secondly, dumb. you're telling us what's going to happen with it. Is it going to be obtained? No. Secondly... You're telling me that human civilization discovered an entire alien planet, right? And with all of these things, and the only thing it cares about, like, the only thing, it's a lush planet. Look at all of the different fruits and things. And, like, you're telling me that the only thing that the military is doing on that planet is going after unobtainium? Get the fuck out of here. I like that you said that because compared to Dune, Dune. where it's like there's (laughs) nothing on the planet. So there's not any like that's the only thing to do is to get the to get there's the spice. rare get the rare spice. There's but the spice, you're right. baby. On the Avatar universe, and I just want to say this because I have my qualms with it. I hate the fact that we have all this technology, we have this ability. Like, yeah, we're on this planet, we can make literal clones and put someone's mind of the alien species in them just to go talk to them. And the whole yeah. purpose of these blue bodies is just to go be friends with them, so we can get the mineral on their planet. It's we so don't want to like learn their culture. We don't want to like see if there's anything else that's of value. No, we just want to destroy the. In- and it's very heavy-handed, like environmentalism. But like at the same time, I feel be more like- creative. I feel like if I was if I was in that universe, I'd be like, this just sounds like colonization with extra steps, guys. It literally <laughs> just, is. It literally is. <laughs> we're just making is. this unnecessarily complicated. Yes, I'm glad we, <laughs> we got should that. Just out colonize. Of the way. Why don't we just colonize? Uh, yeah. But okay, and then you'll actually see as I explain this movie how the second Avatar movie kind of rips off Dune 
in a lot of ways. Uh, But let's jump right into it. Three things. I'm going to give you a primer, right? Just like I did for Lord of the Rings. Hopefully, I'll do even better than Lord of the Rings. I think I can because there's not as much information that you need to know as Lord of the Rings. Like, Lord of the Rings Silmarillion information is so hyper-dense that we were like 28 minutes in. And I was like, all right, now we can talk about Lord of the Rings. Um, (laughs) This one's a little bit easier. Okay. Uh, So, big backdrop. Uh, And this is just like a, a visual backdrop. You will notice... As you're reading or watching Dune, there is no technology. Um, It's more apparent in the book why there is no technology, right? Why there's no artificial intelligence. Like the the Dune story starts in 10,192. And humans are spread across what is the known universe at this point. There are no supercomputers. There's no Death Star type stuff. There's, There's none of that. The reason that it is so technology light is way distantly like thousands of years ago in the backdrop of Dune. There was a, what was called the Botlerian Jihad right now. We know the word Jihad and there's a lot of words that are borrowed from proper English language. So you can assume maybe at some point earth existed in the Dune universe. We're not a hundred percent sure, but like probably. So there's the Botlerian Jihad humans go to war with machines, i.e. the matrix, right? But we don't need to see any of that. We don't need to know any of of it. All we know from the very apparent nature of the Dune universe is humans won, right? They won. They've also learned how to travel space and time. So, like, you're not going to see crazy guns or lasers and stuff like that. And I'll get more into why they don't have those uh, as we go through this. But ultimately, you're not going to see crazy technology in this. Um, And everything has a very manual feel. You'll even notice when, you know, like when... Paul Atreides or, or his dad, uh, Leto Atreides, are in those like little grasshopper jumpers, the thopters yeah. that they have, right? When they're in the ornithopters, like it's all very manual. And there's good uh, – the reason for that is humans went to war with AI. They beat AI. And then they decided instead of ever having that problem again, let's just start breeding people to be super smart. Let's start making our own supercomputers out of people. So over thousands of years, uh, the the type of person, because they're still technically human, uh, called a mentat has been brought into existence, right? Now, that being said, there's also a level of mysticism to this. So once again, this is very much influenced by medieval times and by like medieval stories. Uh, so it's drawing... Although I would call, although anybody who reads Dune, anybody who watches Dune would call it a sci-fi epic, it's drawing from fantasy epic, and it's drawing from medieval style fantasy epic, hence the feudal reference. And that's about it for the big backdrop. Then there's three things that I've written down that you definitely need to know before Dune starts. Right? Uh, the you need to know these things, and they're not overly explained, although they're apparent in the movie. One, Paul Atreides, who is the main character of Dune has been trained by his father to be a mentat. They mention this in a conversation, but it's not really like heavily focused on, which I think is one of the brilliant parts of this. Um, Paul Atreides has been trained by his mother to be a Bene Gesserit. Now that's that mysticism that I was mentioning, and we'll get into the Bene Gesserit in a minute. And then Paul, Atre- Paul Atreides has been trained by Gurney Hollick, the war master, oh. and Duncan Idaho, the sword master. Jason Momoa and Josh Berlin. Yes, two of the best warriors in the known universe. So, Paul Atreides hmm. has been trained to be a human supercomputer, 
someone who can embrace the powers of mysticism and someone who can fight and understand military tactics. So basically, he's being trained to be like a superior human being, right? So I got a, a quick breakdown. Yes. Now, we're obviously spoiling Dune at this point. Yeah. Um, I is Does Duncan Idaho, are we going to get to see him again in the second part or is he gone? He's he's dead. He 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 dead. He got. I didn't know if maybe he came back heroic in a way death or something. No, there was heroic music and everything. He's no. gone. Yeah, he's gone. Yeah. yeah, sorry. All right, cool. So, uh, what what is a mentat? And I've got a bigger explanation for this. Simple explanation. Big nerds. Big nerds. Uh, Big nerds. Like I said, they're human supercomputers. Uh, they started breeding them after the Botlerian Jihad, which was essentially the religious war against artificial intelligence where humans won. Uh, Mentats are now trained and often employed most readily by the big houses that exist in this universe, of which there are three that we only need to care about for this movie. Um, and then like the best example, the most ready, readily available example is uh, a guy named Thufir Hawat, who is employed by House Atreides, right? Uh, then what are the Bene Gesserit? Simple answer, witches. They're oh, witches. Okay. They're just witches. Night sisters. That's what they are. Got well, it. they embrace, they embrace the intuition, right? They embrace a lot of things like that. But <gasps> is that more Paul's than witches, mom? More, what? Is that Paul's mom? She is a member of the Bene Gesserit. Yes. <sighs> that's why she's been training him to be part of the Bene Gesserit. So they actually, they reach into something that's deeper, like human wisdom and ancient wisdom. And almost, it's almost magical, right? So that's like, that's kind of where the sci-fi fantasy gets blended here. And I think that's what really influenced George Lucas to have more fantasy elements in his sci-fi films, i.e. the force, right? Mm -hmm. um, and once again, you'll notice some similarities, but Dune came out before any of these really big things like like what much like how i was talking about lord of the rings and how it's like the godfather of most modern fantasy dune is the godfather of most modern science fiction and so i really do think like if you're a huge fan of science fiction read dune it's worth it like even if it's not your favorite you'll still enjoy it if you're a big fan of fantasy read lord of the rings mm. you'll still enjoy it uh the ben Gesserit are witches though they have been carefully crafting okay <laughs> this is the other thing so they're witches. They're also, and not in the way that we would think of them in this current day and time, they are eugenicists. Hmm. They have been carefully blending and influencing the blending and crafting of bloodlines over many millennia. Not right. to pick out one specific bloodline, but they were they've been going like, oh yeah, like like they've they've been treating humans the way that we treat dog breeds, right? Like they're kind of like but but in a much more um, grandiose way. And their whole aim is they want to make this thing called the Kwisatz Haderach, which is a male-born Bene Gesserit. So, like, all the Bene Gesserit that are actually in the Bene Gesserit, when the story starts, they're female. They're all female. They've always been all female. That's what they've been doing. Um, and they're trying to breed the Kwisatz Haderach, which is a male Bene Gesserit, born that can use this ability that they have called it's basically like future sight it's the sight uh hmm. but they there's certain areas that they cannot see and they believe that after years and years of carefully selecting and breeding this into existence they would eventually create the kwisatz haderach which is this boy or man eventually who can see where they can't see which would give them like much greater power in the known universe and hopefully bring about peace. So they do have like 
they have like a benevolent aim but ultimately the the means by which they're going about it i think if you were to look at them ethically you'd be like yeah that's kind of fucked up uh so that's them interesting yeah then let's get into the players of dune okay because there's there's some big players and you just need to know these names this is once again just backdrop uh the spacing guilds think the east india trading company never went away and now they own the shipping routes of space right that's what it okay. is uh they're not the best people but they're around uh the landsrad council which does get mentioned as the landsrad council and then also mentioned as the high council basically it's a supreme court of the universe to help solve disputes between the big houses okay uh the benjesserit who i just mentioned the sisterhood of machiavelli and eugenics <laughs> Uh, they they are interesting manipulating things from behind the scenes uh and we'll get into how they go about that why they can go about that the way that they do uh as we go through this and then the three great houses are the real players that we're going to focus on which are house atreides mm -hmm. so that's paul atreides his dad uh leto his mom jessica uh who's actually his dad's concubine once again we're talking like feudal almost like medieval influenced uh house harkonnen which are that's okay. Baron Harkonnen. These are the people who were in charge of Dune up until the Atreides get possession of it. Uh, and House Carino, which is where Emperor Shaddam comes from. And you said the Emperor doesn't like House Atreides. Yes, that's important. Let's do a quick breakdown of the houses real quick just to finish laying the groundwork for this. House Atreides from Caladan, right? That's their home planet. It's Caladan. Their symbol is a red hawk. Once again, if you look up these symbols, they're very medieval looking. Like, it's a red hawk over, like, a coat of arms, right? Uh, Duke Leto's ring actually has a hawk on it in the movie. You can see, like, there's a there's a bird on it. Like, it's it's supposed to be the red hawk. It's oh, yeah. It's gold because yeah. it's on a ring. But that's – they. Uh, Denis Villeneuve did a very good job of incorporating all these details without over-explaining – overly explaining it to us. He's but what that also does – is for some people who are used to things being overly explained to them, it, it's a little confusing. Um, so House Atreides, quick overview. They're a military powerhouse with great political influence. People kind of love them. They look at uh, Duke Leto as being a very honorable and likable person. Uh, he, he basically, like, they're kind of looking – and he's, he's a cousin to the emperor, first cousin, I think. So if oh, the emperor – If the emperor and a couple people around the emperor were to die – house atreides would assume power in the universe basically they oh. become the next big house right so that's where the threat kind of comes in and that information's not a hundred percent in the in the like in the Does movie all his like second cousin then <clears throat> uh something like that that that's going to become more important as the movies go on uh house harkonnen they're from gaty prime uh their their symbol is an orange ram Right, so so an orange ram, uh, Vladimir Harkonnen, who is the head of that house, is the mortal enemy of Leto Atreides, and believes that Dune or the planet Arrakis is his. Like he he thinks it's it's without like birthright? ever overtly saying it. He yeah he basically ass assumes entitlement over it, like hmm. he, almost to a divine level. Like he almost he in the like movie? it should be theirs forever. Uh, um, Stellan Skarsgård. Oh, the weird. Oh, I thought that was the Emperor. Who's the Emperor? No, no. Uh, we'll get there. Uh, the in the Emperor's movies. in the second movie. The Emperor's in the second movie. And it's, oh, okay, uh, okay. Christopher Walken. Uh, so, what a choice. I love that. So great. 
So uh, the Harkonnens are a spice trading house. So they're in the pockets of everybody, right? And spice, it, we'll get into that, is like the most important thing in the entire universe, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's the most important thing for many reasons that I'll break down when we get to the spice. Uh, they abuse the native peoples of Arrakis. Uh, known Zendaya. As the Fremen. Yep, yep. So Zendaya's people. Uh, and Benicio Del Toro. Uh, but they abuse them so that they can harvest the spice and make a ton of money off of controlling the the flow of spices, they call it, or the way in which they release it to the world. Think diamonds, think oil, right? Oh, this okay. is all a big, like, blood. industrial, political space opera, right? Makes sense. Um, and then Glosu Raban, uh, who is a member of House Harkonnen, is Dave Batista, a.k.a. the Parakeet King. And he is the sitting ruler of Dune. So although it would seem that Baron Harkonnen, um, Stellan Skarsgård character, is like the guy who really oversees Dune, and he kind of is. He's been doing it from a from like a comforted seat, while the person who's been in charge of like o directly overseeing Dune has been Glosu Raban, Dave Batista, like boots um, on the ground. Yeah, he's well, he's he's like the right hand, right? He's the one who's like mm. cutting down the Fremen and keeping them in their place and doing reconnaissance missions and stuff like that. Uh, third house that we have to care about, House Carino. They are from the planet of Kaitan. Uh, their symbol is the Golden Lion, and you actually hear it mentioned in the beginning of the movie. They say the the ascendant to the Golden Lion throne, uh, which is what they call it, while House Carino is like while they're in charge of the universe, it's, it's referred to as the golden lion throne. Uh, this is where the Sardukar come from. And once again, I think that Denis Villeneuve did a very good job of just showing us these things without overly explaining them. So the Sardukar are the other army that we see once we see the uprising that's happening. Well, not uprising, but the, uh, the surprise attack on Arrakis, the mm. Sardaukar are known as like some of the best fighters in the world. Think Hessians, think hired guns, think black ops. Like that's what they're known for. They're known for being ruthless. The only house that can really like compare to them and maybe beat them would be house Atreides by themselves. But it's actually kind of rumored amongst the like big houses that like in order to take down the Sardaukar, you'd have to use all of the military might of the known universe. Like you, like oh, they're wow. that tough. Yeah. They're that, that regarded. Um, and then Emperor Shaddam IV has the Golden Lion's Throne. Emperor Shaddam Carino the Fourth. So uh, that is that's that house. Now, any questions about anything so far? Who is Austin Butler playing in the second part? Fade Ratha, who is okay. uh, essentially a hired assassin, part of House mm. Harkonnen. You can see by like his look, like he's got the typical bald and black appeal that they get right mm. um and then i believe florence Pugh is playing iluna carino who is the emperor's daughter i cannot wait i yeah um, it's gonna be great Any i questions? love denny Velenu. yeah me um, too. him and greg fraser make a great team for this yes. i mean one of the things that i think whether the the plot of dune interests you or not Denny Velenu is really good at making really good-looking and incredible movies that nobody sees. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, he's easily one of my favorite directors. He is um, my favorite. And the, and the work that he and Greg Frazier were able to put together for this is it's amazing. Love that man. So here's, here's what I really love about Dune. They hand you the entire plot in the first act. Like mm. the entire plot. 
They give you every single setup you need moving forward. Everything after that becomes the hero's journey. So I really want to take like some good time to break down this because the first 30 minutes of this movie are so dense. Like there's so much happening. And if you're not paying attention to all of it, which we've talked about this, like second screen viewing is a thing. AI writing things is a thing now. Like there's not a lot of, there's that there's not, it's not that there's not a lot, but like there's more and more opportunity in our lives to have entertainment on in the background and not be paying attention to it. But this is something that's very intentional, something which which I love. And like, you have to pay attention when you're watching it, but just in case you didn't, or in case you are interested in just hearing the plot of this, uh, I'm going to be breaking down, visually and metaphorically what's going on in the beginning of dune so the first act we're on kaladin right Mm -hmm. uh but before we get to kaladin there's like this little intro bit and i want to compare this this is really funny there's actually a lot of like lines that i could draw between the other thing that i've broken down lord of the rings but in the beginning zendaya is Mm. explaining what's been going on on arrakis right so like But the first thing that happens, so very beginning of the movie, it's blank and you just see on the screen, dreams are messages from the deep. And that's spoken in the Sardaukar language. So the language of House Carino is used in the beginning of this movie and it says dreams are messages from the deep. And then you almost see like, you're kind of seeing a dream sequence, but Zendaya, Zendaya, I say Zendaya. Can I say Zendaya? You say Zendaya. I say Zendaya. All right, so Zendaya is uh, then explaining what's going on on Dune. She's giving you the backdrop that you need for this particular movie. She's saying, like, the Harkonnen showed up. They're oppressing us. They're taking the spice uh, so that they can bring it to the different spacing guilds so people can use it because it's this really, like, super, super rare uh, an amazing resource. It's only found on Arrakis, mm-hmm. and it's only found because of the sandworms. Um, so let's just let's do a breakdown on spice real quick, just so people understand what it is. First off, it's called the spice melange in the books, right? Which is a beautiful French term. Um, but like, or at least it sounds French as fuck, right? But like, so the spice melange, also known as geriatric spice, <laughs> which is not the name okay. of every single Spice Girl as they o- as they get older. Oh my <laughs> but god! Ger- <laughs> but geriatric spice. So they call it the geriatric spice because spice has been known to one help mentats and spacing navigators who are essentially mentats, these human supercomputers to be able to use their sight ability and their predictions to safely travel across time and space at high speeds, almost instantaneous, like hyperspeed, like uh, Like hyperspace, but like even faster. And imagine, imagine like if they didn't have spice, these two things would be able, they would collide with each other in space at, near hyperspeed and just like blow to bits and become dust right Mm. so they do need that for this type of travel for the trade routes to even exist we need spice spice is also known to awaken people's seeing abilities so the bene gesserit really appreciate it right because they they help to awaken your sight like your intuition connect you with your deeper ancestors things like that because they actually will tap into the memories of their ancestors to use that wisdom to make better decisions moving forward. So it's good for that. It's a psychedelic, really. It's a it's a drug. Spice is a it's it's a it's desert space cocaine, right? So the desert space cocaine, also I love that name. Also can keep you alive. 
wait, now, oh, like forever? For a long time. We don't know how long. Nobody says like immortality, right? But here's the raw deal. And we've talked about this before. I love a raw deal. If you stop using it, especially after using it for an extended period of time, like say if you were living on Arrakis, right? If you take the spice away, you go through spice withdrawal, which is not what happens when you stop listening to the Spice Girls after listening to them for a week straight. <laughs> spice withdrawal is, in fact, it's what happens when you leave Arrakis after living there for a long time or after having used Spice for the majority of your life, not using it anymore, you die. Like, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no systems around it. There's no two ways around it. If you stop using it after using it a lot, you die. That's it. Mm. Done. End all, be all, right? So, mm. super rare resource. Only on Arrakis. It comes from the sandworms. It particularly comes from the sandworm larva. They're the ones that are... So sandworm babies produce spice. Not oh. even the grown sandworms, which partially explains why everyone's afraid of sandworms and why they're so territorial. But so the, the spice comes from sandworm larva. They harvest it. They use it for space and gills. They use it for Bene Gesserit purposes. It's used for you know being able to see visions of the future. It's a psychedelic. It's it's desert space cocaine, and everybody wants some baby. So why um, not just you know like get two sandworms and keep them and make them mate and produce larvae and then just mine it. That have you way. seen how big those things are? I mean, you they know, also you... don't have the technology. I don't I don't know why you're trying to pick this apart. They they don't have the AI because you would have to use. Let's assume you would have to use AI for it. And they're not doing that. But regardless, mm. they're they're So laser spa- fences. Spice mining is happening. Uh, whatever. I, yeah, go ahead. You, you, you know what? Okay. Odie, why don't you go there and solve it? You go to Arrakis okay. and solve I it. I will. <laughs> All right. Great. Uh, so Zendaya plays a character named Chani. We hear her explaining like, hey, the Harkonnens came here for the spice. Uh, they, they're absolutely horrible to our people. We're trying to fight back against them, but their technology has proven greater than ours. Uh, and then she goes, and then one day they were, they were gone, right? This is basically Galadriel explaining the backdrop to the Lord of the Rings. Then we see the title of the movie. And then Timothy Chalamet wakes up out of a dream sequence, which, which we can assume Zendaya was, Zendaya was a part of, right? Um, the first thing that you see on the screen once Paul Atreides wakes up is it's, 10,191. Uh, I don't think that they put an AD after that because they're not putting it in the Earth universe, but it's the year 10,191. Yeah. As, as far as their calendar is concerned, that's where we are. Uh, and this, this is all just setting. And going back to what I said, Paul has been training his whole life, and the very first thing that happens to him after he wakes up and starts interacting with these different characters on Caladan in this first act is he's at breakfast with his mom and he's like, I want some water. And his mom's like, you need to use the voice, which is a Bene Gesserit technique where you use, essentially you tap into that wisdom of your ancestors. You produce this ancestral voice that can command people and make them do what you want. It's magic. They're witches, right? So, so yeah. So the, the magical witch eugenicists of this universe have figured out how to convince people to do what they want through this thing called the voice. (laughs) He taps into it enough to get her to move the glass toward him. And although it falls short of being given to him, she then finishes pushing the glass toward him because he's, he's at least done something right. He's proven that he deserves to have that water. Right. 
and and so she gives him that and then kind of adjusts him she she's like she or she kind of gives him a note you know she's like she's like hey you need to you need to focus a little more on that like you'll figure it out and she encourages him because she's been doing this his whole life she's been training him to be a Bene Gesserit so that he can hopefully be the Kwisatz Haderach and that comes up later uh so then then he goes and meets with his dad his dad has been training him to be a ruler his entire life. So like it's mentioned very early on, Hey, I want you in full dress. We're receiving the emperor's envoy. The emperor has sent this envoy to Caladan to tell house Atreides, Hey, the Harkonnens don't have Arrakis anymore. It's yours. You get Dune. It's yours. Now the emperor has done this, like you said, to pit the houses against each other. And Duke Leto mentions this in the first act. Like yeah. when he has a very, he has a very poignant conversation with Paul about this. But before that even happens, there's this beautiful, beautiful scene. And Denis Villeneuve paid so much attention to this. First off, you've got the Emperor's envoy arriving, right? You have all these faceless, nameless people around who get mentioned, announced by the Herald of the Change, right? So House Atreides, they've got everybody ready to receive the Emperor's Envoy. Emperor's Envoy shows up. This is very much like a parlay or an envoy from, like, back in medieval times, right? A little bit of that, like, medieval fantasy type feel to it, that feudal system that I think really just makes this world sing differently than other things. Um, the Herald of the Change is like, I'm the Herald of the Change on behalf of Emperor Shaddam IV of House Carino, uh, heir to heir to Padisha's throne, the Golden Lion throne, I announced that uh, immediately House Atreides is going to take control of Arrakis and its spice production. Uh, how do you respond? Now, right before he announces this, Leto talks to Thufir Hawa and he says, how much is it going to cost them to do this little gesture to us? Just to announce this. Instead of like, sending any other form of communication. They've sent this whole huge ship yeah. that takes three different navigators to get there. And Thufir Hawa, his eyes flip back, they turn white, and then he's, he says billions of Solaris, right? And which you can only assume, you don't have to know what a Solari is. Like, it sounds like an intergalactic A lot of currency. money. It's, it's a lot of money. Like, imagine, imagine billions of pieces of space gold, right? That's what this is. Uh, and what Leto's doing is he's confirming his suspicion that this isn't a gift, right? This is a gesture that is costing the emperor something, but the cost will be outweighed by what the emperor perceives to be what's going to benefit him. So this Herald of the Change is basically showing up and going, hey, this cost us a bunch of money. I'm here with members of the Spacing Guild. I'm here with, and he announces it. He says, I'm here with members of the Spacing Guild, the High Council, and other houses in order to witness that you are responding to me saying from the emperor you get arrakis how do you respond which is basically him going you're fucked right you're fucked you know you're fucked right and then duke leto says there is no call that we do not answer we are house of traders because he's honorable likable man he says we accept <laughs> and he goes that's basically him going yes i understand that what you're saying is you're trying to fuck me yeah, and then up. the other the other guy looks at him and he's like, mm, and nods. And then Leto nods. And there's this beautiful political, like, they don't have to say anything else. You're like, this is tense. They both know that this is not what's actually going on, right? Yeah. 
And then the herald of the change even motivates him, like, because, like, he looks at the paper that announces it and makes it official. And, like, he even has, like, this nice little, like, he's like, your seal. Like, he's like, you have to put your seal on this or else it's not going to, it's not going to go through. And then had he refused, the emperor would have had cause to go to the high council and say that they've refused this. We can wage war on them now. Oh. We can force them to do what we want, right? I was going to so ask you, like, what would happen if he was just him. like, he was just like, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> then the emperor would have shown up with Sardaukar and likely Harkonnens because the Harkonnens hate the Atreides. This is so it would have been the same outcome almost anyways. They would have died faster, right? It would have been worse, really, because they would have been on their home world and their home world would have been bombarded, mm. right? Um, some Like a, a little tidbit, it doesn't come into the movie at all, but like, uh, atomic weapons exist in this universe, but they exist uh, only for the purposes of using against things that aren't human. And if humans use them against other humans, it's uh, grounds for immediate planetary eradication. So like, like you could use them against sandworms? Yeah, I yeah, I guess so. Oh. If you wanted to. Uh, that that probably would get you eradicated as well, though. Yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So all, all these people are there, and like we're, we're kind of going through and we're meeting these characters. So we got Jessica. We got Duke Leto. We got Thufir Hawa, right? We, uh, Gurney's standing there. Gurney Hollick, right? Uh, Josh Brolin's character. I like there. Gurney Hollick. And they're all receiving this. The only person who isn't there who flies in the scene afterward is Duncan Idaho. Now, the mm-hmm. importance of the scene with Duncan Idaho is to show how much of a brother to Paul he is, right? This is his sword master. This is someone he's been like in friendly competition with in a training scenario his entire life. This is someone he could place like the care of his life in the hands of. Right. And so they have this really nice back and forth where Paul's like, I want to go with you. And you know, Duncan's like, well, you'd have to convince your dad, but I don't think that's happening. Right. So then Paul goes to try to convince his dad. His dad's like, you can't go to Arrakis ahead of me. You have to be a ruler. Right. So, like, you've got this nice scene with Duncan Idaho where he reveals why he's going to Dune in advance. Uh, and then you've got, like, so he actually goes, like, way ahead of time for them. And then uh, Duke Leto in the following scene, and this is really beautiful. They show a bowl on the gravestone of Paul's grandfather goring Paul's grandfather. This was a man who risked his life to do something that brought him pride, and he died for it, right? And Duke Leto even mentions it in the conversation because Paul's like, well, grandfather fought bulls for sport and you won't send me to Arrakis. And he's like, yeah, look where that got him. Right. Yeah. And they're in this like cemetery. Right. And this is where I think probably one of the most important lines of the movie happens. Uh, So like there's a lot of different lines that kind of play into each other, but this one kind of stands out on its own. Uh, Leto says a great, he says, your grandfather told me that a great man is not a, he he's not a born leader he's called to lead and he answers and then he follows it up he even he goes a little bit further he says and if you're called to lead and your answer is no you've already been everything i've ever needed you to be because you're my son and that is like the perfect scene because what it does is it removes the tension from him being called to lead the house and it and it it shows just how much Leto actually cares for his son as a person and not just the future of his house, which is something that like, in contrast to Baron Harkonnen, who we see pretty early on in the movie, who's like, we want to like squeeze the the flow of spice throughout the galaxy so that the prices skyrocket, so that when we go back to Dune, because we want to fuck up House Atreides while they're there, 
we can take over and then start releasing more spice at a higher price because we're back on Dune, right? Mm. And like, so he's revealing this like money motivated plot while Duke Leto is having this really like beautiful human moment with his son on Caladan. Uh, then we move to uh, we move to Paul training with Gurney Hollick. And this is because Duncan Idaho's left, right? So his Swordmaster's gone, and then the Warmaster comes in. Now, the difference between Swordmaster and a Warmaster, Swordmaster's training you for combat. A Warmaster trains you for tactics. Right. So he's been training Paul his entire life already anyway. And you can even sense their relationship before Gurney's in the room. Because Gurney's, he says, you shouldn't, We've we've already told you you shouldn't be in a room with your back to the door, right? Like this is what he thinks about. He thinks about assassins. He thinks about plots. He thinks about tactic and positioning and where you are at all times. And that's where his mind's at. And it's tiring for Paul. And Paul's like, I'm really not into this today. And he's like, he's like, he's like, I'm not in the mood. He's like, mood? <laughs> like you know, Gurney Hollick. Like this triggers him because he's yeah. the war master. And then he goes after him. He's like, he's like. There's no mood for combat. Like, you think combat happens when Not you're wrong. in the mood? <laughs> no. He's like, no, it could happen at any time. And then they turn on these little force shields, right? And oh, I yeah. just want to touch on these for a quick second. The force shields are why you don't see guns. And you even see Paul, like, brings down the sword pretty quick on the shield, pretty quick on the shield, pretty quick on the shield, slow. And when he brings it down slow, the shield turns red because it registers the slower movement. And it vibrates, right? And then, But then the, the sword breaks through. And they even say this, the slow blade pierces the shield. Now, what has happened is humans have decided that these shields are how they're going to defend themselves against projectiles. So that's why you don't see guns. That's why you don't see bazookas. That's why you don't see lasers. Because those are all high speed. Right. And high speed gets blocked by these shields. Like, it just gets deflected. It, it, it's null. But as, as soon as you're moving at a certain, like, lower speed, it it can't block it. Like, that's the range, right? And so there's almost, like, a code of honor to that, right, that everybody has these shields. And you might ask, like, well, why don't they just make full-on force shields? Like, it's like, well, because then there's not really as much of a movie or tension in any of the fight scenes. But it's cool to have those rules. I like that rule. So, so let me ask you this about the shields because yeah. it's not really – I need to rewatch this movie. But – Hit me. Do they have like a health meter where like if you had, no. let's say, I'm just, okay. No. So like if you had like a 50 cal machine gun and you're like, I'm going to put 500 rounds in this bitch, eventually it'll break. It's like indestructible. No. Yeah. No, the shield, the shield would block all the bullets feasibly, but then you even see later and we'll get into it. There are, there are weapons that have been designed to have a continuous propulsion. So as the shield fights them, the resistance goes up and up and up, slowing the thing down until it goes through the shield. Right. Uh, that's what happens to Leto later, right? The dart. Remember the dart? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So continuous propulsion is another way that you can go against the shield, right? Hmm. Uh, because it'll get slowed down, slowed down, slowed down, and then all of a sudden it'll penetrate. Uh, but there's a really important line uh, between Duncan Idaho and Paul Atreides before we leave the planet where the first line of the movie was dreams are messages from the deep. And then Duncan Idaho who is very rooted in combat and real life in the moment. He says, dreams make good stories, but everything important happens while we're awake. And so I love that, like, they took, 
this thing that could have just been the theme for the movie. And then they're like, yeah, but also here's a concession to that statement. Yeah. Right? So all the important things that are going to happen are going to be while you're awake, but these dreams are, they're going to, they're going to be messages for you, but everything important is going to happen while you're awake. So I, I really like that. They've done that through two different lines in the movie. Right. Um, then we move on to them. Like Gurney Hollick kind of like he explains how brutal the Harkonnens are to Paul before they leave. He's like, you've never fought against Harkonnens. They're brutal. Like he even emphasizes that word. He's really trying to like, he's not trying to make Paul afraid, but he's trying to like instill in him this idea that they're going to a hostile place. They're only going to be in danger for the foreseeable future. Right. And then he just kind of leaves him with that message. And he's like, all right, cool. See you later. Like we're, we're leaving soon. Get ready. Um, that's training for today. And then there's one final scene on Kaladin that's super, super important before we go, and that's the Gomjabar scene, right? And this is the scene where the Bene Gesserit come down to the planet under the cover of darkness in their own little ship, right? Because that's how they move. They do things in the shadows in secret. Jessica comes and wakes up Paul. She's like, you have to come with me. Paul's like, what are we doing? She's like, don't ask questions. You have to come. And this is because Jessica has been told by the Bene Gesserit uh, mother whose name I have written somewhere because uh, it's like Mother Reverend. Uh, what's her name? Her you name is you're talking about, though. Yes. Her name is her. Mother Reverend. Or, well, they just call her the Reverend Mother, but she's got like this whole crazy long name. Uh, let Hold on. Let me find it. Let me see if I've got it up here. Uh, no, 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 no. Nope. Can't find it. All right. Uh, so the Mother Reverend, who's like the leader of the Bene Gesserit, she tells Jessica, you have to bring Paul to me, right? Now, the Bene Gesserit know that Jessica has given birth to a male son. And she mentions after this scene, you were only supposed to give birth to females. And this is because the Bene Gesserit don't think the Kwisatz Haderach can exist yet. This is why they're coming down. She's coming down specifically to test Paul and make sure he could even start the journey to figuring out whether or not he's the Kwisatz Haderach. Okay. So this is his first test, like his first real test. And we've set this up. He's been training his whole life. He's been training as a mentat. He's been training as a war master. He's been training as a sword master. He's been training as a pilot. He's been training as a future leader of a house. He's been training as a Bene Gesserit. All of this stuff, like, could you imagine, like, and although they only establish it visually, it kind of shows why his personality is the way it is in the beginning. Like, it's very dry. It's very formal. He, yeah. he asks poignant questions. He doesn't. He's not super emotional, but he gets a little bit, you know, to show his youth. So, like, it's it, that's that's just his, his entire life has been training, 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 training. Everyone around him is constantly training him to do something. So, obviously, he's going to be very studious. He's going to be very formal. Um, he gets up, falls his mom. They go and they meet the Reverend Mother, right? When they get there, Dr. Yue is there, who's an important character. Way more important in the books than the movies, but... His importance in this scene is Jessica has brought Yue there to check Paul's vitals before he goes into that room. And the reason that she's doing that is she knows what's about to happen in this room. And so if his vitals were off, if it if he was like sick or something, she would have gone to the mother reverend and probably been like, no, we're not doing this right now. He's sick. Like imagine if he had a fever or was like, yeah. you know, anything like that. She'd be like, no, 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 shut it down. No, you can't. That's unfair. You can't do it because she knows he's about to go through a trial and I think she knows what trial he's about to go through. 
And then the Reverend, she brings him in and, you know, she's like, you, the Reverend mother just immediately, she's like, mm, you have eyes like your father. And she like the way that she says it, she, you can already tell she doesn't like this at all. And then she dismisses Jessica. Jessica has to leave. Now, an important thing to mention about the queen Rev or the mo Reverend mother that never gets mentioned is, or at least doesn't really get touched on that much in the movie, but it, it'll come up more in this new second one she is the emperor's personal truth sayer oh yeah no 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 the herald of the change does mention it she is that well the herald says and a member of the best bene Gesserit, but she is the emperor's personal truth sayer this is someone who in the presence of the emperor would tell the emperor if someone was lying that like a lie detector human lie detector she, she is a human lie okay. detector her intuition is so great that if you told any lie, she could just be like, that's a lie. Kill him. That's who this person is, right? Um, and sh Paul is in a room with her by him by himself. Now, this is probably the most important scene of the first act. Because Denis Villeneuve put them, one, in a library to highlight the fact that there's not all this crazy technology, even though we're in the future, right? This right. futuristic sci-fi setting. They're in a room full of books. It's a very closed-off setting. She uses the voice on him, and then Denis Villeneuve and uh, Greg Frazier used dollies to show what it's yeah. like from the perspective of someone who has the voice being used on them, right? She says, she says, come here, kneel. And, like, as that happens, they, like, dollies into Paul. It dollies into her real quick. It kind of, like, yep. fades almost to black and then fades back out, and then he's kneeling in front of her. The behind the real scenes quick. of Dune, I watched the entire hour and a half. It's on yeah. YouTube, and it's it's it highlights – Denis Villeneuve and it highlights Greg Frazier again, a man I will yep. never shut up about. Yeah. And I've said it before on the podcast, like what he did for the Batman movies and everything, like the creativity that this man behind a camera can utilize to yeah. make things so unique so and like stand out visually is just incredible. And you pair yes. him with a director like Denis Villeneuve who Blade Runner 2049, Arrival, those are like two great examples so of good. his work. And it's just like, damn, like yeah. the dolly shots in that, like that scene is incredible. It's so good. So she beckons him forward and she's about to put him through a test. Now the test has the same name as the thing in her hand. So this can be a little bit confusing. It's called the Gom Jabar. The Gom Jabar is a poison needle. She says, put your hand in this box, right? And the box, you can see it's like casting shadows within itself. It's like a very mysterious thing. It's just big enough for the hand. It's claustrophobic. And he puts it like reluctantly, kind of, you know, he's kind of like slowly, like questioningly, he puts his hand in there and he says, what's in the box? And she goes, pain. Now she's Gwyneth testing Paltrow's him. head. What's that? I said Gwyneth Paltrow's head. Exactly. Seven. So, what's in the box? Anyway, sorry. So, <laughs> so. This is a test of endurance, and if he failed, she's prepared. She's the Emperor's truth-sayer, so who's going to stop her, right? Even Jessica stands outside of the room just hoping Paul survives. Um, and and she's, she says, she's like, what's in the box is pain. I hold the gum jabar to your neck, right? Like, she kind of, like, pounces on him almost, right? She's yeah. got it. All of a sudden, it's to his neck, and he's like, she's like, if you take your hand out of this box, I am going to kill you. It's instant death. You will die. The poison needle is going to kill you. And then we start seeing this sequence of like imagery 
because this is more of an intuition test. This is a wisdom test. This is a sight test. So he starts feeling and sensing his hand burning. And we even see the image of like a charred hand burnt, you know, like to a crisp. And so as he's going through this intense pain, like you can imagine your hand being on fire, right? Like that's what he's feeling. And all of these other images are coming through his head. This sight that he has is, is slowly being awakened. And this might be like the first time that it's actually starting to come to the forefront for him. Right. And then he passes the test ultimately. Like we know that cause he continues. Yeah. He doesn't die. But, and, and she's like, she's like, cool. If you would have flinched at all and revealed that you were more of an animal than a human, then I would have killed you. Uh, good luck. And then she says, she says, I hope you live when she leaves. And she doesn't say it in like an actual hopeful way or a stern, like cold, like sarcastic way. She just says, I hope you live and leaves. And then she's talking to Jessica and she's like, we told you only to have females. You had this male. You're training him in our ways. We had to test him. He's lucky he survived. We've done everything we can for you on Arrakis. Now, this is a reference to the Bene Gesserit having for centuries been all over the known universe, seeding these ideas of the Kwisatz Haderach. Like there's, they're, they're putting in these ideas of a savior for the universe because that's what they're, they, they essentially worship a God who doesn't exist yet, who in their minds will take human form. Mm-hmm. So interesting. when she says that, what she's saying is like, Hey, on Dune, we've done everything that we've can. We've, we've seeded these uh, beliefs and that's where, so one thing that I want to touch on, before we even talk about Arrakis, is that Paul gets addressed by a few different names on Arrakis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when he gets there, they call him Lisan Al-Gaib, which means voice from the outer world. They say it in the movie. But what that is, is that's like a Messiah-type legend that's been seeded by the Bene Gesserit there. And they even kind of like offhandedly mes- mention it. They're like, the Bene Gesserit have been at work here. Um, he also gets... Uh, so they also they mentioned this mouse, this desert mouse, who he eventually like takes the name of. It's Muad'Dib, right? Um, so Muad'Dib is like this desert mouse, uh, but people will say like, uh, people say things like, "I only serve Muad'Dib. I only serve Lisan Al Gaib." Like all these different names, and so Paul's kind of like, eventually it could be confusing because it's a little bit interchangeable because he's Paul Atreides, he is Lisan Al Gaib, he is in training to be the Kwisatz Haderach. He is Muad'Dib. Like, he's all of these things, right? Um, but we go to Dune. And that that's where, like, you get your f- first real big, like, start of the hero's journey because he's actually left his home planet. This is 30 minutes into the movie, but they've already handed you everything that's going to happen. Here's a kid who's been trained to be all these things his entire life. He's going to a place that's full of nothing but danger. He's going there with his family who have essentially all but been like given a a literal death threat from the emperor right he's going there uh to a place where the harkonnens were everybody hates the harkonnens because they're just cold and decisive and all about money the harkonnens have even mentioned in the one scene that they're in that like this isn't actually a gift from the emperor we're gonna go and massacre the atreides right like you know all of these things going into dune and then that beautiful dense 30 minutes just sets up all of the action that follows. Yeah. Because as soon as we're there, he gets 
like and i can kind of speed run this part like they get the lay of the land they see some of the spice mining they see a sandworm attack right like the first time we see a sandworm it's literally eating a a gigantic uh a gigantic machine that and it, it is the 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 sandworm's name is shai halud right it's it's worshipped as a god of the desert it's like the biggest sandworm like hmm. Yeah, this is the sandworm that everybody everybody's like, oh yeah, Shai Halud. Like that's the that's the one in charge. He's he or she, she's the sandworm, you know, like that's the one. Yeah. So so the Fremen call it Shai Halud, then and that even kind of gets like thrown into the mix. So you have these names that could be a little confusing and I think sometimes are for some people, but Shai Halud's the sandworm. Muad'Dib is a name that uh that Paul Atreides eventually takes. Lisan al Gaib is the name of the savior that the Fremen use for Paul. Because in their minds, they're like, oh, yeah, we heard about you hundreds of years ago with like this myth popped up about you. Yeah. And now you know, you're here. Speaking of the naming. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, you've got two ends of this spectrum, in my opinion. Yeah. You've got. I, don't know, I think Star Wars is a pretty good example because like there's some names like Luke, Leia, you know, like and then you've also oh, got yeah. like Qui-Gon Jinn. So like I think, you know, you got a little bit of both, some creativity, some grounded, more earthy names, but then you've got some of the best naming, like, in cinema with Rebel Moon. Like, just how creative to come up with all those names, you know what I mean? And by so that, anyway, I mean... So... <laughs> so but what, what, what I was actually going with that is, legitimately, it's nice to hear, like, all of these names and be like, wow, I've never really heard these names other places, and yeah. what I legitimately was going to say about Rebel Moon is... You pointed out, and I thought too, like, it's just copy and paste from, like, every big franchise that it's yeah. trying to copy. It's dumb. It yeah. doesn't even try. But with no. Dune, like, everything you're saying about these names and everything, I'm like, wow, like, I, God, like, I've never heard these names anywhere else. Well, and this is something, you know, once again, drawing the parallel, Frank Herbert did something that Tolkien did. He wasn't to the extent that Tolkien was. Tolkien invented his own languages, yeah. right? His own conlangs, where he was combining different languages and then making his own for his own fantasy world, right? So you've got you've got conlangs from uh from Tolkien, and then you've got Herbert who very obviously the influence for dune the influence for arrakis because it's a desert planet was a lot of things in the middle east so lisan al-gaib actually is very similar uh to what you would hear in arabic right and but in in this movie because it's arrakis it means voice from the outer world i think in in uh in arabic it would be like tongue of enlightenment i think is the name like lisan al-gaib i think is tongue of enlightenment right so mm -hmm. like but then in this movie it's voice from the outer world you know shai halud which, which is like the sandworm's name that's very very um that makes me it almost it actually makes me think of my favorite one of my favorite spices raz al-hanut right <laughs> so like i thought you were uh, gonna say uh um what's uh geriatric spice uh, or or no. <laughs> knee replacement spice. Yeah, right. Knee replacement spice. <laughs> Hip surgery spice. Um, <laughs> so, so they're they're on Arrakis, and the next, like the beginning of, or rather, this kind of like rounds out the first act. But the end of the first act, they're they're just showing you like here's what the city looks like on Arrakis. It actually looks like a termite hill, right? And it's mm -hmm. because a lot of the stuff is under layers because the sun gets so hot, it gets up to like 140 degrees. And you can't be out in that, 
right? No. And I like that they just say 140 degrees, and we all know what that is, and that's it. And there's, there's no other metric for it. They're not like going crazy. Three with seasons. It. Yeah, they're not, yeah. There's no there's no seasons like that. Yeah, they're just like 140 degrees, and we're like, we know that's hot. Like that's real. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then they show like how uh, how bad the Harkonnens left the equipment. They didn't leave all the tanks there for them. They've really set them up for failure. Um, then we meet um, we meet uh, the leader of the the Fremen, played by not Benicio that, del Toro. Is that is that What's Benicio del Toro? No, it's not Benicio del Toro. What's his name? Uh, I for, hold on. <laughs> I don't remember who all was in that I'm group looking with it up. Zendaya. So we got well Zendaya, Zendaya's character, her name's Chani. Right? <laughs> uh and then we've got where is it? I'm looking it up right now. Stilgar. Stilgar is a essentially like he's like a leader of the Fremen. He represents the Fremen people uh when we first meet him. Duncan Idaho, it's revealed, is alive. Uh it, you know, and Duncan even says he's like he's like, I've never had to fight so hard in my life to survive and it was against the fremen he's like javier they must bardem. have watched me javier javier bardem plays stilgar who's an amazing character and like duncan idaho's like yeah i invited their leader to come here to talk with us because duke leto's idea is to do the opposite of what the harkonnens did the harkonnens show up and they're like we're gonna oppress these people we're gonna make them feel the pressure of us being here and the spice is ours now right duke leto's like we don't want to just harvest your spice and peace the fuck out. We want to ally with you people. And yeah. he even says, Duke Leto's super smart. He says, here on Caladan, we had water and air power. And you can tell that's what's important. There's these vast sea, like sea frame shots that happen on that planet. And the skies are huge. So, of course, yeah, sea and air power. That's what they I just also, goes, I want to say, because I yeah. feel really dumb. Benicio del Toro is not even in this movie. It's Javier Bardem. I don't yeah, know why I thought. Yeah, but I honestly sometimes I confuse. So every once in a while, I'll be like, "Was that Benicio or Javier?" Um, My bad. <laughs> I have the same issue. Uh, but like, so he's like, "On Arrakis, we need to cultivate desert power." So G Leto is Duke Leto is coming there with this intention of allying with the Fremen and creating an even stronger house for himself. Right. Right. Which is, I think, super smart. I don't know why the Harkonnens didn't do that. Probably because they care more about money than anything else. And they would rather own it solely than share anything. But that's the difference between the houses. So we're learning these things. Um, there eventually is an assassination attempt on uh, Paul, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that little, the little hunter seeker, they call it, that comes in. That's one of those things that would use continuous propulsion to try to break his shield. Because you can even see him turn on his shield. And then when it comes at him, because he's been trained so well by Gurney, by Duncan, he's able to catch it and smash it, right? Thufir Hawat, being a mentat of great honor, thinking to himself how he didn't predict that this could have been possible, tries to hand in his resignation. And I love Duke Leto's response because this part of this act just shows how smart he is, how much effort he's putting into like the survival of his family. He's like, you would resign when my family's life is most in danger? No. No, you want to make up for this? <laughs> Go find the rest of yeah. these assassins. Like, which is just so good. I love that he's like, I don't accept your resignation. I don't yeah, care. Yeah, that's smart, like, actually. You have to protect my family. Eventually, we get to the big scene that breaks us up into Act 2, Act 3, which are uh, the... So Act 2 begins with the attack on the House Atreides by the Harkonnens, who have yep. gone to uh, Kaitan to get Sardaukar. 
And the Sardaukar, in that scene where you see them, like, they've got the people hanging upside down who didn't make it through training. The Sardaukar, they're, like, the Navy SEALs of the Empire, right? Like, mm. if you didn't make it through training, you're out. A uh, little more hardcore in that they will then hang you upside down and bleed you and use your blood as part of a ritual for, like, anointing the future Sardaukar, right? Yeah, a little like, extreme. Hey, remember these guys that you trained with? Yeah, we're going to rub their blood on your face now because that because they didn't make it. So, But you they can carry weak. them with you and yeah. bring honor to them through your actions because um, the Sardaukar are just hardcore militaristic. And the Harkonnens go and they get like three battalions, I think, of Sardaukar, which is still a decent fucking amount. I think it's like yeah. somewhere around like 30,000. Um, and one thing that I want to point out is like we get very focused on what happens around the immediate vicinity of House Atreides in the books it's a little more well explained but like they've occupied all of the cities that the harkonnens had on this planet so like when this is happening it's happening all over the planet as well and it's only mentioned in one bit of dialogue which i think is great because we don't have to see like you know the myriad shots of all the different cities falling right we just yeah. have to know that what happened there happened everywhere else mm -hmm. and the First, what happens is the Harkonnens start bombing the Atreides ships. So the first thing that they do is they get rid of the retreat option. They get rid of the retaliation option. Like, ships are gone, they're blowing up, and they've they've cut the power to the city, right? So they've cut the power, they're bombing ships. The Atreides start waking up, and they actually, like, you can tell from the sequencing and the way that Villeneuve and uh, Greg Fraser did it that the Atreides are actually holding their own and might even win, Right? Like, they're actually doing really well against a surprise attack because they're so well-trained. And there's even that beautiful scene on the staircase of all the different Atreides guys fighting in an almost phalanx fashion with spears and short swords against yeah. the Harkonnens. And they're just cutting them down. But then the Sardaukar come and land. And when the Sardaukar start landing, they just start massacring the Atreides from behind. So it's it's a it's a proper, like, pincer attack. And what's happening there is happening all over the planet. Duncan Idaho actually escapes. Paul Atreides and his mom are captured by the Harkonnens and taken away, presumably to be executed. And then this is where, like, the real hero's journey opens up. Um, I should, just to, like, kind of touch on it, Leto, like, uh, the reason that the Harkonnens were even able to do anything was because they captured Dr. Yue's wife, who has a yeah. bigger role in the books but is not in the movie. And that's fine because, like, all you need to know is that Dr. Yue betrayed the family. That's how they were able to get in. Dr. Yue is even the one who shoots that dart that has that continuous propulsion that goes into Leto's neck. Uh, Leto, looking up at him, seemingly paralyzed now, right, is uh, he's, like, he's staring at Dr. Yue. And Dr. Yue is like, hey, I'm so sorry, but they took my wife. I had to do this. I, that's my wife. I love her more than I love your family. I'm sorry. Right? And he's like, but I'm going to put this capsule in your molar. And if you bite down on it at the right time and exhale, you might be able to kill Baron Harkonnen. And I love that scene. I love that. Like this guy who betrayed them is like, but I fucking hate them. Yeah, so fuck them too. <laughs> yeah. But fuck them. So here you can do this. And then when we get to that scene, he, where he's going to bite down on the cap capsule, we see how ruthless Baron Harkonnen is. He's already, like, on this planet. He's super obese. He's supported by, essentially, yeah. like, a levitation, uh, let's call it, like, a levitation hoist, right? Like, it's, it's like, underpants and a belt, and you know, it's like a hoist. Yeah. It's a proper, like, um, 
What would the turn? Yeah, it's a hoist. Uh, it's like around <laughs> him, and it just lifts him up off the ground because he's so fat he can't do it himself. Um, but the first thing he does is like, he's like, "Oh yeah, Doctor Yue, we said you could join your wife, so you'll join her." And then, like, yeah. they kill him, of course, because why not, right? Of yeah. course, Doctor Yue would be so short-sighted that he would get won over by that and then back uh, double-crossed. But then Harkonnen goes to get in Leto's face, and Leto like to draw him in closer acts like he can mouth something, but can't really speak all the way. And so Harkonnen gets closer and closer. And then he finally bites on that capsule and blows it in his face. Everyone else in the room dies except for Harkonnen. We know this. Um, Cause they show it later, but yeah, this allows us to move over and focus on what's actually happening in the rest of the movie. So another important character who we don't get to see a lot from, is Dr. Liet Kynes. Liet Kynes is the female uh, who uh, she's got like the braided hair. She's okay, the, yeah. the judge of the change. She's the one mm-hmm. who's supposed to be overseeing what's happening on this planet. And she can't, she reveals to Leto like earlier on, I can't report back to the emperor saying that this was unfair. Like this is just what you were left with. I'm sorry that this is what you were left with. I, I have no reports that show anything else. Um, so she's like, I can't do much for you there, but I am the ecologist for this planet. Uh, and Liet Kynes is a super interesting character. And although they don't fully explain it, they show you more than they talk about it. Uh, she's actually been working to try and transform Dune into more, uh, Arrakis, into more of a lush planet. So mm. she's working on specific types of ecology that would then evolve and grow and turn dune into like a an overall nutrient rich planet like something that had a lot of great resources not just spice uh for all of the fremen and for like everybody else there so she's been working on that project in secret and that's part of what we see when uh paul and his mom finally paul and jessica finally meet up with her um but the the rest of this movie i I don't think we need to break down shot for shot. I think it's it's very it's very poignant to just say it's a hero's journey. We get introduced to a lot of the big players who are going to be in part two. We see just how much Paul's training comes into effect. We see how little trust he has for his mom who let him go into the Gom Jabbar trial and it's like a source of tension now he's like you've just been training me to be some fucking weird thing my entire life and I don't like that like yeah. it, it so he's all the but it's still his mom so he keeps her with him right uh you know they're eventually they're confronted by Shai Halud right who's like right in front of them gigantic like and just looking at Paul and then kind of like utters this like reverberative uh rhythmic guttural sound at paul and i love that scene it's like religious it's like there's like this beauty to this tiny tiny guy uh looking up at shy halud who's just like staring at him with all of its thousands and thousands of teeth uh and it just it just says like a little thing and then a thumper sets it off and it goes another direction um and then we meet stilgar chani uh, I forget the name of the guy who Paul kills, but um, mm. another Fremen who, and this is this is a pretty important part of the book. Uh, Paul has a dream that he must kill the boy to become the man, right? And this this is what this means. This is his first threshold that he actually has to cross on the hero's journey because he's already crossed into the journey. So his first 
threshold to properly cross his first real trial is can you kill a man like and not only and and it's not just can you kill a man it's not like you've got to kill that guy it's no this guy has challenged you to combat because he doesn't trust you but what that means for him out of a sense of honor and duty is that one of you dies now and that is like the culminative scene of this movie because Paul's already been through so much, right? They've already been through this journey. They've been running away from the Harkonnens. They've survived multiple assaults, right? They've they've run away from the Sardaukar. They got chased into a storm at one point. Uh, Duncan Idaho has defended them to his last breath while trying to run away from the Sardaukar. And we finally get up to this point where Paul is faced with the choice to actually fight someone for himself. Because up to this point, everyone's helping him. Like, yeah. everyone else is helping him along the way. And this is the first time that he has to actually take his training, everything he's learned, everything he's done up to that point, and put it to use. And he does. And he, he defeats that guy. And at first, he doesn't want to kill him. And Stilgar is getting mad. He's like, he's like, what is he doing? Like, this is very dishonorable for him to not kill him when he gets him into that position, like where he could kill him. Why is he not killing him? And then Paul finally does kill the his combatant, right? The yeah. Fremen who's challenged him. And that's the moment that the Fremen are like, okay, well, congrats. You've passed one of our tests now. So what now we'll bring test. you Kill our city. friend. <laughs> Well, it's not they don't say that that is the test, but but yeah, they're like they're like, wow, that's actually kind of a rite of passage. Like if you get challenged to a fight to the death, you you uphold with honor. And yeah. although you didn't do it at first, you did finally commit. And when he commits, they're like, OK, all right, we can accept this guy. Um, And then we get that beautiful final shot of seeing someone actually riding a sandworm at the end of the film that tees up for the second part. Yeah. So that's Good. my that's my deep dive into what we need to know about Dune so far. I really kind of wanted to get into that uh, because the second part's coming out, and I feel like clarifying yeah. some of those players, some of those things that are explained more visually or in like one-off sentences rather than like over-explained in the movie. Um, I think it's really it it, get, it would give somebody a lot more clarity to go into the second part knowing those things, like Emperor Shaddam. The Sardaukar, his personal army. That that's from his planet. You know? Now there is one thing that I I and I don't know anything about Dune, so I don't really know what's coming in the second yeah. part. But I do know that in the invasion scene, yeah, uh Gurney yep. goes out with a group and then he yep. just never shows up again. Okay, so this is the one shot that I think is a little tropey. You see him running. You see his entire group about to engage with uh, the Harkonnen army. Yeah. And then there's an explosion closer to the screen that kind of just cuts the scene, right? Like, yeah. so the explosion happens and the scene cuts. Gurney Hollick, I'm sure you could just look up the cast list right now. He's in the he's second not part. Dead. Yes, he's yeah. not dead. Uh, he survives that. He is. Much like Duncan Idaho, he's one of the best warriors in the known universe, right? Like, he is the war master. So he does survive. Uh, Gurney Hollick is actually... I love what Denis Villeneuve did with this character. But in the books, he's he's known for singing and for reciting poetry as much as he's known for fighting. He's a true warrior poet. Uh, <laughs> which is why, in that first scene... Uh, when Paul says, I don't really feel like fighting today, Gurney. How about a song instead? You know, like that's 
That's why. A little nod. It's because in the yeah, because in the books, uh, he's known for those. Like he's known to be a guy who like yeah, he's he bring he's the life of the party. So he, he knows like, a lot of great songs and poems. Yeah. So he just like ex- like obviously maybe there'll be a scene or something, but basically in that fight, he he somehow escapes and meets back up with Paul. Uh, so he's going to survive the fall of House Atreides, and then yes, at, at a later point he will meet back up with Paul. Now, please, for my sake, yes. you, you don't have to. Huge spoiler. Yeah. What I'm asking here. Okay. Does he make it to the end of the second part? Will he? Will he survive? I'm not gonna do it. Okay, that's fair. Hey, Google real quick. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, I'm gonna no, tell you in the second part, there's gonna be some really awesome fight sequences it's definitely the second part and i'm glad they broke up because if you look at a copy of dune it's huge right it's bigger than lord of the rings it's bigger than lord of the rings if you put all three lord of the rings books together you might have dune right like that's how big this book is it is it is a sci-fi epic it is the godfather of all sci-fi epics um that being said I think that Denis Villeneuve did the right thing breaking it up. I I believe into three parts. I'm I'm cool with it being a trilogy because what that means is, is it? even though I just broke this up into uh, act one, act two, act three, even if it's two parts, it's still much better than it would have been as one movie because the original Dune movie was one movie and it didn't near scratch the surface on what was no, important. it did not um it's only two parts i think the third one that you're thinking of might isn't there like another book in the dune universe so there's there's a bunch of other books in the dune universe so Um, i think it's one of those that he might be doing as i don't that would see it on his upcoming i can okay so the second part the first one was like two and a half hours right so if the second is two and a half i mean there's still going to be like some some bigger what i think once again there's it's going to be the case where like there's a lot of stuff that's shown or mentioned or alluded to but doesn't get overly explained because the book is very detailed uh and does go into a lot of things i think denis villeneuve is doing a good job of picking the most important pieces of the meat of the book you know and kind of breaking that up into these movies dude even if it's only two parts i think it's already still so much better than anything trying to be done in one part with that book isn't um, it crazy how dune got broken up it's one book broken up into two movies two and a half hours and the yeah. hobbit is a tiny tiny book broken up into three movies with filler oh. that was created by so dumb studio <laughs> well and they in the hobbit they tried to include some of the silmarillion but like it was weird yeah, yeah it was just and weird. gandalf's weird trip that he goes on that's not even that's from canon. the silmarillion that's oh well, no it's it's no it's canon it's there yeah i mean like yeah it's it's different. <laughs> Legolas, uh, though, he wasn't in the original. No. <laughs> Anyways. No. Uh, uh, but yeah, Dune is so, incredible, though. I really do is. like the world, and knowing a little bit more about it, I'm excited to watch it again. Yeah, I mean, I was like, I've, I've watched it so many freaking times. Yeah, I I've mean, it, like, Dune for you is like times. Star Wars for me. I I can rewatch it all the time. Yeah. 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 Um. But yeah, I I'm looking forward to the second part. I th- I think it's going to be really great to see how people approach the uh the uh space desert cocaine <laughs> that is spice and, and yeah you know, like, <laughs> that's that's probably my favorite part is that like it's this thing and they say it not i don't they didn't say it in the first part but like it gets mentioned in the book they're like they're like what an insidious little thing 
to that. Oh, like, yeah, we've yeah. been breathing it on this planet. Like if we leave this planet now, after you've been there long enough, it's like, if you leave now, you, you die. die, you die. Yeah. You ha- That's crazy. Unless you take it with you, you know? So yeah, just awesome. Yeah. What's your jam? What do you got for me? Oh my God. Uh, geez. Um, you first. <laughs> Me first. I always go first. You first. All right, that's fine. Uh, my jam this week. Uh, I actually really, I've been loving the Book of Clarence soundtrack. Um, right, you mentioned that. We yes. Uh, the Book of Clarence soundtrack is amazing. Uh, it's got like Lil Wayne. It's got Doja Cat. It's like it's got, it's got these really cool like gospel backgrounds, really sick rap beats. I've dude, I've just, I, yeah, I've really, really, really been bumping that a lot. I'm about to put that on a list. Actually, let me get that now because I always, sometimes it's I always say I'm grab the things you recommend. And then yeah. I always end up, I always forget. And then the book of Clarence, the motion picture soundtrack. Yes. Let's see. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, Ooh. so okay. Good. Okay. So good. It, dude, it's Angelo's on of, here. Yeah, it's reminiscent of the Black Panther cool. soundtrack in that, like, mm. it's just like it's it's a curated compilation of amazing artists who are just like bringing these songs to life. I love it. Yeah, I like. That. What do you got? Um, so the only thing I've really been doing on top of my previous jams is I on Audible have yep. been uh, listening to the first Percy Jackson book because. I'm not sure if I'm still the right age for it, but when it did come out originally, I was around the right age, and then okay. I, ended up reading, I ended up reading the entire series, and now with it being on Disney+, Plus, which, again, phenomenal show. I yep. Percy Jackson is, to me, what like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Hunger Games, Twilight is to other people. Like This was yeah. my book franchise. This was like, you know, I am obsessed with Greek mythology. I always have been. Um, I've written papers about Greek mythology for like school. I have the seven ancient wonders of the world tattooed on my shin. And some of those come from Greek mythology, like the statue of Zeus and Athena's temple and things like that. Yeah. And so Percy Jackson was just such an interesting, for one, the author Rick Riordan wrote it for his kid. And I love him because people like to compare Percy Jackson to Harry Potter. It's not really a fair comparison because one is written by an idiotic bigot who changes things after she's already written them. And the other is written by a wholesome, wonderful man who, as time has changed, great example of this is he cast a person of color as Annabeth. In the books, she's described as being a blonde-haired, blue-eyed person, right? And people are like, what the hell? What the hell? How'd you do this? And he's like, well, A, uh, things have changed and my mind has opened up since I wrote these books. And two, um, who cares? Yeah. Which is totally fair right like if you're talking about greek gods existing and i mean zeus is played by the late great um oh my god from john wick voice of zavala and destiny vance reddick you know he's played by him you've got uh linwell man miranda who i don't like he's 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 playing one of the gods so like it kind of makes sense that these demigods would be of different ethnicities of different backgrounds you know they're because if these gods are going across the world, why wouldn't they, you know, it's not going to be stereotypical, you know, American blue-eyed, blonde-haired people. But yeah, the world of Percy Jackson, if you're a fan of Greek mythology, it he's done such a good job, in my opinion, of weaving it in with American history, right? Because obviously, oh, yeah. like, in this world, a lot of the Greek gods and stuff are in America, which doesn't make any sense. But, you know, who cares? You know, it's 
you gotta if you're gonna watch this, you gotta have some suspension of disbelief, anyways. Yes. But I love the world building. I love the characters. I love these like this idea that you could be you know a kid of a of a, of a Greek god, which you know as a kid when I was writing papers, I was like this would be so cool to you know like be the kid of one of these Greek gods. Like imagine be a demigod, yeah. Like dude, that's awesome. That's way cooler than being a wizard. I don't care what anybody says, but um, those books are phenomenal. And like I said, I I might be looking at them a little bit more fondly because I read them as a kid. So to me, they still are interesting. I don't know if like adults would like the books, but I do know that the show is great. I think yeah, it's I good for all ages. Episodes. It was good. I like um the kid that's playing Percy. He was in yep. the Adam project, which is a movie that I genuinely like with Ryan mm-hmm. Reynolds and um Mark Ruffalo. So yeah, just really good show, really good series of books. Um, I, really like and this is just a little teaser the end of this franchise yeah is so and i apologies in advance it is so much better than most franchise book series like this it's better than twilight it's better than hunger games it's better than harry potter the way that this series wraps up and the character development of percy jackson in the end of this it makes all these other like harry like harry potter himself and like Katniss yeah. and them it makes them look like they had no like they had no growth as a character oh cool and like not saying those characters I didn't have know. growth all right like obviously Harry Potter and Katniss do and all of them but like the way that Percy starts off at 12 years old being dumped into this world yeah and the way that he approaches it and you kind of already see hints at it where he's like why do we do things like this the yeah. way that that transforms across all the books to the end oh awesome and maybe off the pot I'll tell you how it ends because I think it's really cool all right, that's cool. Well, I mean, is it? That's my jam. Is that is that also your deep dive? It might be. No. All right. I hope it is. It uh, probably that'll be will cool. Be. It probably I mean, we will get at be. least we get at least go through the first book, right? The Lightning Thief, I think it's called, right? Lightning Thief. My favorite yeah. book is the Labyrinth. It's the third book, and it is okay. the best. Cool. Um, yeah, but I'll probably do a deep dive and try to not speed run, but you know, keep it simple. I'll probably go through all five. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. I hope you do. That'd yeah. be great. That's if it. you That's were, if you were a demigod, which god would you want to have been born by? Which which god would you like to have sired you? Okay. So when I was a kid, I wrote my paper that I was the kid of Ares. Now, okay. as a mature, not really just thinking about war all the time as a kid, because well, you're a little kid, a, you're passionate, right? And I was, you know, I'm a marine, so like oh, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Now. Uh huh. I would probably say most likely mm-hmm. Athena. Okay. Or still still relatively war related. Yeah. Okay. Or Apollo. Okay. I could see that. Hunt, wilderness, tracking. Apollo's dope. And Athena, yep. wisdom, war. Like I wouldn't mind being a tactician. More of like gun, gun, gunnery, you know, bringing it back. Gun, yep. Gunnery. Gunnery. Whatever you say his name. Gurney, that's Gurney. it. But yeah, what about you? Uh, I mean, do I just have to pick Greek gods? I guess I do. Uh, I would. <laughs> so if we're if we're picking Greek gods, I would definitely go. Uh, I would I would want to be. I think desired outcome, probably like demi god status under Zeus, because like mm-hmm. he's king of the gods. So like yeah. I mean, I would I would like to be under lightning relatively related. Yeah, that would that would be pretty cool. Either mm-hmm. I would say either Zeus or um Hermes is messenger of the gods, but he's mm-hmm. not a god, right? Is he no, a god? No, he's a god. 
Mm-hmm. And then either Zeus or Hermes, because I feel like those those are two cool ones where like like if you're if you're a demigod son or daughter of Zeus. Actually, no, you know what? I pick Hermes. Um because yeah. Zeus Zeus's wife, Hera, was famously jealous. So like I feel like if you're a kid under mm. Zeus, like chances of infant mortality go up a hundred percent like not a hundred but you know like yeah. they go up real high but like if, if it's hermes people are like oh yeah he's just flying all over the place that makes sense yeah of course he's got a couple extra kids around like yeah it makes sense and yeah, also feel, if if you're in the percy jackson universe poseidon hades and zeus would technically be like a one in a million shot because they're not supposed to have kids anyways oh okay the wow. only the only greek god that i a thousand percent would never want to be the kid of yeah poseidon because i hate the water Oh, That'd be yeah, the worst. Well, yeah. Imagine being the yeah. kid of Poseidon and being like, I fucking hate the ocean. What am I supposed to do now? Oh my god, so you would love Dune. Like if you yeah, were on a Honestly, racket, oh my god. That. I would love I love suit? the desert. I Recycle love the desert. Sweat? Yeah. Oh my god, Wait. it's great. Sign me up. Hell, For real. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right. That's it. That's it. That's it.